0: Uh, it, when the morning comes, let me be singing your praise. Well, it, when the evening comes, that's what it is. But in the morning, it talks about the morning. There's something about the morning. You, you remember that line? Somebody help me out. What, what's that line? When, ah, the sun comes up, it's a new day dawning, it's time to sing your praise again, right? Love that line, but I recognize that there are, and let's go ahead, with a show of hands, if you are one of those people that when the sun comes up and a new day is dawning, the first thing on your lips is not praise. There are people in here like that. There There's some people that if it was possible to be allergic to a time of day, you would say, I'm allergic to morning. I just, I don't function well. And then there's other people that that is their best time of day. They wake up and it's 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 go time. And when those two people live in the same house, that can be stressful, right? Because You wake up, and you're kind of going around in that state of half-sleep. Your eyes are partially open. You're not even sure. You've got this mix on your face. It's like this look of sort of confusion, sort of disgust, sort of even anger. And you're just kind of like, I can't believe it's morning. And then the other person in your house that likes mornings, they're all bubbly, and they say something like, well, be happy. And you're like, I don't want to be happy right now. I just... Don't tell me to be happy. I don't feel like being happy. Um, some of you are like that. And we're going to, this morning, open up to a passage in which we're commanded to be happy. And some of you don't like to be told, be happy. Like, well, be happy when I want to be happy. If stuff's going well, I'll be happy. If it's not, I'm not going to be happy. Don't tell me to be happy. That's the attitude many of us have. You know, for some of you, I trust that some of you came in here this morning. And even just thinking back to the last week of your life, you can list a lot of reasons to be happy. We got to move into a house. I'm not happy about how my muscles feel right now. So if there's a lack of hand gestures or weird hand gestures today, it's because I'm really sore. But we got to move into a house that we. We're able, by God's grace, to purchase. Over the last couple of days, we've been moving. And so, now we have a house. That's reason for us to be really happy, to rejoice greatly. Some of you have maybe similar things. You know, I think this weekend, Thursday through Sunday, is the four greatest days in the world of sports. um, The NCAA tournament. And, And if you want to see people being really happy and rejoicing greatly you watch a team that just upset some other team, or some fans of that team that just upset some other team, you see some people really happy and rejoicing greatly. And that's just for a basketball game. And so I recognize, though, that there's some of you here that are kind of thinking this morning, not really feeling a lot of reason to be happy. That was cute that kids were up here, and they were waving palm branches, and that kind of made me smile a little bit. But if I'm thinking about my life and my week, not thinking of a lot of reasons to be happy. We're going to open up this morning to the Old Testament book of Zechariah. And you might wonder, well, it's Palm Sunday. Why are we going to Zechariah? Most of the New Testament gospel, two of it, Matthew and John, when they talk about the triumphal entry that we remember on Palm Sunday of Jesus, they quote from the book of Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. And so we're going to look at those two verses. Initially, I was thinking we were going to look at verses 9 through 17, but we're actually just going to look at 9 and 10, because there's enough reasons for us to rejoice in just those two verses that that'll take up a whole sermon. So you can, if you would like to, we're actually going to read, I'm going to first read to you out of the book of John, chapter 12, verses 12 through 16, and then we'll read Zechariah chapter 9, Verses 9 through 10. My hope is that this morning, we will all leave this place with some solid reasons for us to rejoice greatly. To be really happy. Despite whatever is going on in our lives right now. I wanted to give you a little background before we read the passage though. We've been in the book of Mark for a couple of months now. And if you're looking for Zechariah because you haven't read it for a while, it's four books behind that. You've got Mark. You go back one, it's Matthew, go back one, it's the Old Testament book of Malachi, and then it's Zechariah. So we're going back four books in the Bible, but we're going back about 500 years. Okay? And we're going to look at Zechariah this morning. Zechariah was a prophet and priest, and he was sent to be God's mouthpiece to a discouraged people. The Jewish people had just returned. They had been in exile for a number of years in Babylon, and they were returning now in waves. But they're a little bit discouraged because life is not all they expected it to be upon their return to their land. They're not under the rule of their own king. They have somebody else's king who's still ruling over them. Kings are not always just and fair and humble and righteous. And so they are a people a little bit discouraged and longing for their real king to come. And Zechariah is sent by God to be a mouthpiece, to speak to this discouraged people. Chapters 1 through 8 of Zechariah are written in probably the early parts of Zechariah's ministry. And more than likely, he wrote chapters 9 through 14 later on in his ministry. All written by Zechariah, but at different times in his life. And more than likely, like I said, at different times. Now 9 through 14 is a different kind of literature even. It's called apocalyptic literature. A little harder to understand a lot of times. A lot of symbols and that kind of thing. The book of Zechariah is quoted or at least alluded to many times. Probably over 60 in the New Testament. A lot of people go back to, the New Testament writers will often go back to this Old Testament book of Zechariah. Especially in the book of Revelation. But We're going to look at just two verses here. But I want to begin by reading John's account of the triumphal entry in John chapter 12. So we'll read John 12, 12 through 16, and then we'll read Zechariah 9, 9 and 10. And as we normally do, because this is God's Word, and it's different than my words, we're so grateful to have God's Word, and so if you're able to, let's stand as we read God's Word together this morning. First out of John chapter 12. John 12, 12 through 16. Your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. And now turn to Zechariah chapter 9. Read verses 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold... Of the earth. You can be seated. Just a note I will be hopping around the Bible a lot today. I've tried to put all the references I'll go to up on the screen, and so it might be helpful for you to take out that sermon outline page and write those down. You probably won't have time to turn to each of them this morning. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word that it calls us often to do things that are not natural to us. And so, God, I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you will cause us to be this morning, even though it might not feel natural for all of us, that you would cause us to rejoice greatly, that we would be a people who is really happy because our King has come. And, God, I just pray, too, that, that for those who are sitting in here this morning for whom Jesus is not King, I pray that they would be cut to the heart, that they would be convicted of their sin, and that they would repent of their sin and trust in Jesus and allow him to be king of their life. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Zechariah chapter 9, two verses we're going to go through this morning. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, begins with a command. Rejoice greatly. You could also say, be really happy. Rejoice greatly. Rejoice, I looked it up this morning because I hadn't done this before, but rejoice in Hebrew. And I don't know Hebrew. I know Greek, not Hebrew. But, but rejoice, Hebrew is the r- language that Zechariah originally wrote in. Rejoice has with it this meaning of being so happy that you spin around. Okay, Little kids do that. Most of us, if we tried to do that, we might like, pull something. But maybe you've seen kids that are so happy, they, they just like, they want to twirl around. And it's just a way for us to rejoice greatly. So he's saying, be really happy to these people who probably at this time are a bit discouraged and not very happy. And we get this command. And it's not the only time in Scripture that you see a command to rejoice. You might even have a memory verse somewhere in your mind where you remember, yeah, that's right, God told me to rejoice. There's a lot of commands in Scripture to rejoice. When are you supposed to rejoice? Well, Philippians 3.1, Philippians 4.4, 1 Peter 4.13, all give us reasons to rejoice. Philippians 4.4 says, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Okay, command from God through Paul to the Philippian church and then also to us to say, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. So when are you supposed to rejoice? Always, okay. How are we supposed to rejoice? Psalm two eleven would be. I mean, again, many places you could go to find these. But in Psalm two eleven, you want to know how we're supposed to rejoice. I got to get there. I told you it'd take a while to flip there, and I forgot to mark these in my Bible, so it'll take me a while to flip there too. Psalm chapter two, verse eleven says. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. So how are you supposed to rejoice? There's a little bit of this kind of trembling before the God whom we're rejoicing in. Because we know who He is. And then more, you could look at who is supposed to rejoice. You could look at Psalm 40, verse 16. Psalm 90, verse 14. Psalm 96 verse 11. You want to know what we're supposed to rejoice about? A lot of places you could turn to in Scripture. One that's been really meaningful to me lately is Luke chapter 10, verse 20. And in Luke chapter 10, verse 20, Jesus had just sent out 72 disciples and given them authority to do ministry in His name. It's a privilege for me to be your pastor, and God has given me, and you have allowed me to have the authority to be your pastor, and I'm enjoying it greatly. And and I was reading through the book of Luke, and it really hit me in Luke chapter 10, verse 20, where the disciples returned to God. In verse 17, it says the 72 returned with joy. They came back, and they're just blubbering about how fun it is to do ministry. They're so excited about doing ministry, and they said, they return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They're excited. And Jesus acknowledges their excitement and says, yes, you should be excited. But then Jesus says this to them. He says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. Okay? He says, I know you're having a lot of fun doing ministry, but don't make that be the source of all of your joy. Because, and I've only been in pastoral ministry for seven and a half years, But I know it goes up and down. There's seasons that are really good, and then there's seasons that are tough. And so the command is don't rejoice only when things are going really well. Don't rejoice in this, but rejoice that your name is written in heaven. That's good. That's not going to change. For those of us who have been saved, our names are written in heaven, and so we have all the reason in the world to rejoice just because of that, whether things are going well or not well. Rejoice because your names are written in heaven, says in Luke 10.20. Now the rest of the passage this morning is going to give us at least five reasons for us to rejoice. Now, for Zechariah, you need to know this, for Zechariah, all five of these things that he prophesies in Zechariah 9, 9 and 10, all five of them are future for him and his people. All five of them are yet to happen in Zechariah's time, but for us. Three of the things that I'm going to mention have already happened, and two are yet to happen. Okay, it, it was, Zechariah was prophesying, and some of the things he was prophesying about would happen 500 years later, and those promises of God were fulfilled in Jesus, but some of the things will still be fulfilled in Jesus, but are still future even for us. that makes sense? Okay, so Zechariah's prophesying about two different times, all future for him, some past for us, some future for us. So let's start with rejoicing greatly in what has happened. From our perspective, what has already happened? Here are three reasons for us to rejoice greatly this morning because of what has already happened. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, it says, rejoice greatly. O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Now, now you might think, well, I'm not a daughter of Zion or a daughter of Jerusalem, so I guess this command is not for me. This is about a specific people at a specific time, people who lived in Jerusalem at the time of Zechariah. And in a sense, that's true, but as we go on in this passage, I think you'll see that this certainly is something that becomes much more global in its scope. And so it is something that applies to us. But I like those terms. As God addresses his people and commands them to rejoice greatly, those terms, he uses family language. He says, daughter of Jerusalem, daughter of Zion. God is reminding his people, his covenant people, of his tender and loving relationship that he has with them, when he uses terms like that. He looks at them and he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. O daughter of Jerusalem. It's like, You're mine. I've called you to myself. You're, you're like my, my little girl. Okay, So he uses that tender relational kind of language. And then he says, Behold, your king is coming to you. At this point, their king is not really their king. You know what I'm saying? Like, it was, they were these exiled people that came back, but they don't really have their own king. They've got some other person's king that's king over them. So this promise sounds really good to them, that their king. He says, behold, your king is coming to you. They don't have to go find him, and he's not going to be somebody else's king. This is their king coming to them. And behold is a word that was just there to get people's attention. It's like us saying, look, okay? Look, your king is coming to you. Discouraged people with your chin down on your chest, with your eyes kind of down, lift your chin up because I'm telling you, your king is coming. There's hope. You have a king and he is coming. They look forward to that promise. And in many ways, this was fulfilled When Jesus came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, what we call now Palm Sunday, in his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, we have a king who has come. And so you want one reason to rejoice greatly? Jesus has come. We get to look forward, look backward at what they looked forward to. God is always faithful to fulfill his promises. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Verse 13 says this, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep the command unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which, now listen to this, which he will display at the proper time. He who is blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. That's Paul's word to Timothy, celebrating Jesus as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Our King has come. Rejoice greatly, church, because our King has come. Second reason, we've got three reasons that... We have from Zechariah for things that have already happened. One is the king has come. The next one is it says, look at Zechariah 9 9, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Righteous, okay? Righteous and having salvation. I'm going to talk about the having salvation one first because that's a little more confusing. Um, your version might say, endowed with salvation. Now, it's a hard thing to translate, and that's why it's translated a couple different ways. The new NIV, if you've got the newer version of the NIV, they even just use one word. It just says victorious. So it's a hard thing to translate, but it talks about the king being saved by God's intervention. Now, we know that Jesus didn't need to be saved in the sense that we need to be saved, right? I mean, there's no sin in him, and so he didn't need to be saved. So how is this about Jesus? Well, it's talking about a a different sense of salvation, not the spiritual kind, but a physical kind. That that God intervened, that when Jesus died on the cross, it says in Scripture that God raised him from the dead. It's the work of the Father, or by the, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. The work of the Holy Spirit raising Jesus from the dead. So in that sense, he is endowed with, or he has, he possesses salvation, right? So that's what that means. And then it says righteous. Your version might translate that just. These people sat under a government that was not always just. It was not fair. But they had this promise given to them that their king who was coming, he was going to be righteous. Their king is going to be just. This gives them a lot of hope in a corrupt government. There's a lot of people sitting under, in our government, I mean, as much as we complain about it, is really pretty good, compared to a lot of governments, all over the rest of the world, where people suffer under some pretty intense corruption, in their government. And this is a great word of hope to them. Your king is coming, and he is righteous. He is just. He is a good king, who is coming. Listen to 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, where it talks about Jesus being righteous. My little children... I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But, listen, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. And here's the title that he gives to Jesus. Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the propitiation of our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus. That Jesus is righteous. He is always right, always true, always just. And that He came to be our advocate and our propitiation, which means our wrath absorber. The the punishment that we deserve for our sin, Jesus came to bear that for us. This is the gospel. He came to bear our sin on Himself so that we could have His righteousness as He takes on our sin. And it comes through faith in Christ. And that is reason to be really happy and to rejoice greatly because we have a king who has come, who is righteous and has salvation. Reason number three. Reason number three, look at Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Behold, your king is coming to you. That's verse one. That's reason one. Second, he is righteous and having salvation. And then three, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, this is not what you would expect. When a king shows up, right? When a king shows up, you maybe imagine this big chariot, and there's a lot of gold, and, and there's a fanfare that comes into town in front of them, big security team with them, right? On a, maybe on a chariot, maybe riding this big war horse. Powerful king coming into town. But their king coming to them? Zechariah prophesies will come on mounted on a on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And I'm am I'm a town kid. I had to look up what a colt was. Like I don't. Either, it's a little donkey. Okay, this is like a one year old. Uh, fine, laugh at me. That's fine. Um, go ahead, let it out. It's just a little donkey. He's not even. He's not even coming on like a big, powerful, experienced donkey. He's coming on a little donkey. What kind of king shows up on a little donkey? Well, according to Zechariah, a humble king. These people living under the rule of a bunch of kings who are probably power-tripping. And now their king is coming humble on a donkey. That's our Jesus. In the first coming of Jesus, Jesus came with lots of humility. He was born in a stable, laid in a manger... And came very, very humbly. Listen to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. You maybe even want to turn there, because this is good. And keep your finger there, because we're going to turn there again later. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now this is talking about Jesus, verse 6. Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. But He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the King that we serve. What a reason to rejoice greatly that we have a Jesus who came Humbly, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Colossians 1.20 says that he brings peace by the blood of the cross. That's where we ultimately see the humility of Jesus, and we'll come together to remember that on Friday. We'll come together to remember the humility of Jesus as he humbles himself to become obedient to the point of death even death on a cross, and through that we receive peace. So that was the first coming of Jesus. In the Gospels, when we read the poem Sunday passages, we sing even this morning, Hosanna, which was a call for people saying, save us. And they thought Jesus had come. Most of them misunderstood why Jesus had come to Jerusalem they were waving palm branches because they thought he was their military king coming in to bring in a military victory he's going to use political and military power to become their king but that's not how jesus came he came humbly and then we have some reasons to rejoice in the future. So the three reasons to rejoice because of what has already happened are because our king has come. Our king is righteous and has salvation. And our king is... I just, I just made the point and I forgot it already. So hopefully you remember my sermons better than I do. I walked into the women's bathroom this morning at church. I, I'm tired. Um, oh yes. Yes. The third point is that our king is humble (laughs) and mounted on a... You probably didn't need to know that, and I'm sorry if you were the woman that was in there when I went there. Um, Humble and mounted on a donkey, okay? That's humbling as well. Three reasons, though, to rejoice because of what has already happened. And now, we turn to verse 10. We'll have our final two reasons to rejoice this morning. And it's because of what will yet happen. Rejoicing greatly in what will happen. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 10. Here's what God promises through Zechariah. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace, to the nations. A people living in the midst of an area that still today is just rattled constantly by war. Don't you get sick of it? Reading or watching the news and hearing about more war, much of it in that one area of the world. Yet this king who is coming says he will cut off the chariot and the war horse and break the battle bow And he will speak peace. We long for that. One pastor, Colin Smith, he modernizes this promise of God and says this, I will take away the nuclear weapons programs, the tanks and the missiles will be obsolete and terror will be no more. And then he says, Zachariah sees a day when there will be no more defense budgets because there will be no more enemies to defend against. And he says, this is not some kind of secular dream held by naive people. We're talking about your king bringing racial reconciliation between Jew and Gentile, economic reconciliation between north and south, and political reconciliation between east and west, and the glory of the Lord will cover the mountain like the waters. Don't you long for that day? Don't we? We long for this day to come when our king returns to reconcile the nations, and speak peace to them. And when that day comes, second reason for us to rejoice, our king will rejoice, will rule over all. It says here in Zechariah 9.10, His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river, speaking of the Euphrates, to the ends of the earth. When our king comes, he's not going to rule over a region or a certain people. He will rule over all. When Jesus comes again, he will be the ruler over all. More than likely, scholars say Zechariah is referring to an even earlier prophecy from the book of Genesis. If you looked in Genesis chapter 49, verses 10 and 11, the prophecy there says this. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. And you remember of the tribes of Israel, which one did Jesus descend from? From Judah. Right? Twelve tribes of Israel, Jesus descends from Judah, and it says, the scepter, which is the the the, the sword, the, the the symbol of kingly authority, will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. And then listen, even a reference to a donkey here. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Zechariah is quoting almost certainly Psalm seventy-two eight. almost directly quotes that. The hope that, that, that God's people, when they would gather together, And they would sing praises, their psalms, their songbook was the psalms. This this Psalm 72.8, this coming of this Davidic king that they all longed for and hoped for and had been singing about, Zechariah applies that to this coming king. Psalm 72.8 says, may he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And Zechariah repeats that song that they had been singing for many years, saying, this is coming. God is not slow to fulfill His promises. He will fulfill His promises. Earlier, when I talked about the humility of the coming of King, I talked about the first coming of Jesus, and we looked at Philippians 2, 5-8. I want you to turn back to Philippians. Philippians 2, 5-8 was about the humility of Jesus' coming, but now if you look at Philippians 2, the next three verses, 9-11, through 11, it says this. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, and every tongue or every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus comes initially in humility. Establishing peace by the blood of His cross, like it says in Colossians 1.20. But the truth is, many, and maybe even some here today, continue to reject Jesus as King. Continue to remain in disobedience and sinful rebellion against God. And Jesus does not look on that when He comes again with humility, but instead with His righteous judgment. He will come to judge and will establish peace in a different way in his second coming. If you want to, you can look at Revelation chapter 19. I'm going to read verses 11 through 16. Here's what it says, "Then I saw heaven opened. When heaven opens, it's going to be serious, right? Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in His righteousness, He judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. This is Jesus. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword." "...with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords." The picture of the Jesus who is coming to establish peace and to rule and to reconcile and to rule over all nations those who continue in their disobedience and rebellion against him will be judged and it will not be well for them so what does all this mean for us what about right now we're talking about looking back and reasons to rejoice greatly because of what has happened and reasons to look forward to what will happen and that gives us reasons to rejoice greatly but what about now what are we supposed to do with this today but well, at the very least, I hope one thing is true, that you can see that God keeps his promises. He made five here in two verses, three of them already fulfilled, two yet to be fulfilled. We know that God will keep his promises. I also hope that you leave here today rejoicing greatly, maybe not because of your circumstances of the past week, but because Jesus is the King who came and who is coming. But I want us all to ask ourselves this question seriously question is this do you recognize jesus as your king do you recognize jesus as your king there's only two choices yes or no two different ways to live with jesus as your king or with yourself as your king naturally we all want to be our own king we want to rule that's the way we come into the world we're our own king and you can, if you would like, continue to reject God and continue to live as your own king. Re- reject his kingship. And in the end, you will suffer the punishment due to you for that. And your ultimate destiny will be a place called hell. where you will suffer eternal torment. That's, that's what happens for all those who do, do not acknowledge Jesus as king. John chapter 3 verse 36 makes it very clear. John 3.36 says this, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. We do not want the wrath of God to remain or to dwell on us. That's how We want eternal life. And that comes, as it said in John 3.36, through obedience, through faith. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. I want us to trust in Jesus. I want to have that hope. If you don't have that hope, I don't know how you're going to go about rejoicing greatly. Not now or in the future. Uh, Kirsten's grandparents came uh just to kind of, they, they live up in Clear Lake, and so they're really close, and they just came to visit a little bit yesterday. Kirsten's grandpa's had, I think, four open-heart surgeries or something like that. He's had so many health issues for so many years, and God continues to spare him. And I told him yesterday, right before they left, I said, I'm glad you're still alive. Um, and, uh, and, and he had said uh, earlier that day, he said, well, He said, I went into surgery this time. And he said, I knew when I came out of surgery, I'd be happy. He said, I told my wife Lois, you know what I told her? I said, when I come out of surgery, I'm either going to see your face or Jesus' face. And either way, I'm going to be happy. And I love that kind of hope. I want to live with that kind of hope. That, That if God should cut our life down now, that we would live with the hope that we will see Jesus' face. He will be our king and we will worship him. So the question for you is, is Jesus your king? Or are you living as your own king? You want to talk about that with me? because you're just not sure, I want to talk to you about that. So come and catch me after the service or send an email to me, call me, text me, whatever. I want to talk to you. And the last thing I think an implication of this is that we ought not to be afraid. If Jesus is your king, Do not be afraid. If you you remember when I read out of John chapter 12, verse 15, John quotes Zechariah, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he changes the quote. Did you you notice that? John 12, 15, John changes the quote. The quote says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming to you. John in John 12, 15 says, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming. If Jesus is your king, we need not live in fear. Fear not. John actually replaces rejoice greatly with fear not. Those two things go together. When you're living in fear, it's hard to rejoice greatly. But when you're not living in fear, when you are rejoicing greatly because our king has come and our king is coming, and we know God's promises are sure, then you can live being not afraid. My hope is that we all go from here today living with hope and rejoicing greatly because of all that has happened and trusting that God will cause all the things that he promises to be fulfilled. Final thing I want us to remember. I think I said the final thing the last time I said something, but this is the second final thing I want you to remember. And that is that this is an important week in the life of the church. And so I want this to be something that causes us to look forward to Friday and to Sunday. That when we come on Friday and gather together at 7 p.m., we are going to feel the darkness and heaviness of Friday as we reflect on the death of Jesus on the cross. But as we gather that evening and we feel that heaviness, we also know that we will gather again on Sunday to celebrate the resurrection and life of Jesus. I'm actually going to be preaching for Easter. All I've done so far is chosen the passage and read it. I haven't studied it yet, and I'm looking forward, because I just get the chills just reading it. I'm going to be actually preaching out of Revelation chapter 1 for Easter, where we're told that our King Jesus is alive forevermore. We come to worship a God who is alive. The disciples, it says in John 12, 16, I don't know if you remember when I read that, it says, the disciples... Did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been done. We're going to gather together a lot this week, and we're going to gather together to remember. We can look back and know for sure that this has really happened. Jesus has really come to earth. He really died, and He really was raised from the dead, and He really lives forevermore. And for that, we have reason to rejoice greatly. And so that causes us also to look forward to not only Friday and Sunday, but to look forward to his second coming, what I call that day. Revelation twenty twenty says, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So we live with that kind of hope.